Living Local, telling the stories that connect us. A United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County podcast. So today we're sitting down with Jessica Osenbrugge. She is the executive director at St. Joseph's Medical Clinic, but she has an interesting story to share with us today. She was in New York on 9-11. So Jessica, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And I guess my first question and what everybody's going to want to know is, where were you on 9-11? Sure. So um, I am from the southeast Wisconsin area, uh, West Bend uh, to be specific, and I moved to New York City in 1999 and lived there till 2008. So on September 11th, I was on my way to, to work, um, and I worked for New York Life Insurance Company at the time as a financial writer. I took the train into Manhattan as I normally do. I was on the F train, the F line, and I um, was stopped at the East Broadway stop in Manhattan, which is very close to the World Trade Center. The train was at the station. It didn't, it didn't move or anything like that. And at first it seemed like the normal just morning rush, maybe hiccup going on uh, with the train that we've all become very accustomed to as New Yorkers. But as time went on and we sat there in that train, uh, there was a lot of rumbling in the subway tunnel. Uh, Eventually the lights went out on the subway train and and we didn't have anybody communicating with us on what was, was going on. Eventually the conductor of the train came on and said, uh, this train is departing now, we will be skipping numerous stops. It was still very much on everybody's mind in that train uh, that there's something very strange because of its speed, because it's skipping so many different stops. And the train actually stopped at my normal stop, which was 23rd Street. And I got off the train. I could um, hear on the street level that there was a lot of commotion uh, going on, a lot of people um, screaming, a lot of people yelling, that there was just a lot of people more so than normal on the street level. And when I emerged from the uh, train station, there was people crowded on the sidewalk and even into the road. I walked towards where I, I worked at New York Life, um, and uh, I always had to cross the intersection of 23rd, 5th, and Broadway where the iconic Flatiron Building uh, is. Uh, which is right next to Madison um, Square Park. There, there was thousands of people um, on the street, and all I saw was that one of the World Trade Centers was on fire. And uh, we were seeing it from sort of the the north side of the of the towers, and I didn't really understand what was happening. There were people around me that didn't really understand that what was happening. Um, then somebody blurted out, "Well, a plane hit it." And it was shortly after I heard that, then we saw another fireball from the other World Trade Center. And it became incredibly nauseating at that stage with the level of fear and panic that went into the, into the crowd or through the crowd. I eventually had made it to um, my, um, where I, I worked at New York Life, into my office, and there were a lot of my colleagues either outside or because it was a financial firm, there was a lot of TV monitors and stock market stuff would usually be on the TV monitors. 
but everybody was crowded around the TVs. Almost every single one of my colleagues either um, had a friend uh, that worked in the World Trade Center or a friend of a friend, a family member, or maybe lived in the area of the World Trade Center. I think the strangest thing that I had seen in, in that um, environment was not only was everybody crowding around the TV and they were shrieking and panicking and trying to make phone calls, um, and, and phone calls just weren't going out or coming in, there were some of my coworkers who, um, it took me a little while to understand, but they were sitting at their desks working as normal. And one of my colleagues who was on my team, I asked her, I, I said, are you okay? She looked at me and she said, I can't understand this. I don't know how else to behave. I can't understand this. I have to do my work. And New York Life really demonstrated to its employees that it really cared very much about what we were feeling and thinking. They were following, um, you know, with law enforcement on how to safeguard employees, and they eventually did put us on lockdown. They left it up to us to decide how we can best um, navigate this and cope with it, but there was no expectation to, to carry on with, you know, your work as normal. Um, they were very sensitive to the fact that we were very, very upset. We were afraid um, and that there were employees looking for their family members. Eventually, we were um, released from lockdown. A lot of us went outside um, again. From Mad I went back into Madison Square Park where there was just thousands of people um, in the park. And what I saw was that the New York Transit System um, what they were doing or what they had done was that they had emptied their buses. And this was actually after the World Trade Centers had collapsed. Um, and what they were doing was they were taking those empty buses and going downtown and picking up people from World Trade Center. So they were just the logistics of anybody who was in that immediate aftermath to go down there and pick up people who were running, fleeing, um, trying to get out of the area, and they brought them. This is a continuous loop that the buses were doing. So we watched the buses, and we watched um, people come off the buses, and um, these were the people. They were covered in ash and dust and blood and um, had their clothes torn, shoes missing, but they were alive. They were safe. Mass transit, um, particularly the subways, were some, they, some of them were intermittently running. You really didn't know. It was just based on rumors that you heard out on the street as you decided to try and walk home. And I was looking at about you know four to five hour walk home to Brooklyn. I ended up um, walking partially uh, the way home, and then I, I think I was in the Chinatown area, and I heard the trains are running. So I went down to go see, and I rode the train uh, for a few stops. And the, and the joke I always tell to people um, about New York City, if they've never been there, is that when you ride mass transit all the time, that you really have to learn how to be a contortionist uh, when you're on the subway because you're so jammed into a train car. And I don't think that I've ever experienced being so jammed in with so many people trying to make their way home, and that car was silent. Nobody said a word. Nobody knew what to say. I eventually made it back to my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and uh, the Red Cross greeted everybody. 
what happened that day was that the um, as the winds had blown the debris and the ash and the smoke, it blew right in the direction of Red Hook. So when I arrived into the Brooklyn neighborhood, the streets, the cars were covered in ash, and we were required to wear face masks. And I walked home. It was not too far in my walk that I heard a tremendous roar um, up in the sky behind me. Um, people started to run. They got afraid uh, right away. And um, I looked, and the whole sky coming from about Queens, probably JFK airport area, um, it was covered with warplanes. It was warplanes. It's the only something you ever seen, really, in, in the movies. And I recognized that it was U.S warplanes and it made such a noise when they flew overhead and it's a moment that I'll always remember because um, I think that was the moment that I, I, I finally um, I think I just sort of let go of myself a little bit and um, um, I was almost home and, and, I, and I think I, I just sat on that sidewalk and cried. I did not understand what was happening, why it was happening, what was going to happen next. It was on September 12th that I had spoken to my family for the second time. I did speak to them on the 11th. It wasn't until later in the day. My parents live in West Bend, and it was on the 12th that we talked again, and they explained to me about another woman from West Bend uh, who was missing, and do I know her? Her name is Andrea Lynn Haberman. The news has been talking all about her, um, and, um, and I, I did not. And as it turns out, her and I were the same age, um, grew up five miles apart. Uh, we had never known each other in life. They were searching for survivors, um, and I said, well, I'm going to help. And um, I'm a fellow West Bender, Wisconsinite, and I have to help search for Andrea Haberman. So I contacted uh, the news stations in Milwaukee. And so the, her information was emailed to me in a data sheet um, that had her picture, uh, her height, weight, all those kind of um, specific details. And um, I, it was on the 13th. We were allowed back into Manhattan, but the trains were intermittent. We only could be there um, if it was, you know, we needed to be there kind of thing. But I decided to go on the 13th with my posters and flyers. Everybody at the time, the staging area was at the Armory, which is on 26th in Lexington, about a block away from where I worked. Um, and that's where the NYPD, FBI, uh, a lot of emergency first responders were there to sort with families and friends uh, of loved ones. And um, it was there that I filed a missing persons report with the FBI on Andrea Lynn Haberman. Um, and it's a very strange thing to file a missing persons report on somebody you don't know. And I had the, the data sheet. I hadn't even been in touch with her family uh, at that stage. So it's just your parents had told you about this girl who's from your hometown and you made it your mission to find her? Yes. Okay. Um, there's a few um, reasons why I wanted to help. Um, number one, it was just a matter of uh, logistics. The city was shut down. Mayor Giuliani really shut it down. Um, so anybody outside the city, they could not get into the city. Um, 
I was already in the city, and because I've been living there a couple of years, I knew how how to maneuver um, the city. Even though it was very difficult in those immediate days, I think it took a lot of. I was trying not to be afraid. I really thought about, uh, as a fellow Wisconsinite and West Bender, I really thought I want to help this family. Um, there's something higher level calling me to, to help. My parents, my grandparents gave me a lot of courage and support to help, even though they were very afraid for me. I wanted, I imagined that maybe I'd find Andrea lying in a hospital bed, and I thought even if every bone in her body is broken and she's unconscious, um, I wanted to let her know you're not alone, and I'm going to stay here with you for however long it takes. I was joined by family members and friends of so many different um, you know, people who were considered missing at that stage, and we just walked around Manhattan place to place checking lists, putting up posters and flyers, and we searched. And we tried to get answers from the authorities, and we tried to understand you know, what was going on. Um, in, the, in the search, are they finding survivors? Are, who are they finding? Um, who's making it on the list? And they were updated routinely, so you had to go back to the hospitals and the armory constantly to check the updated uh, list. I uh, will kind of speed up a little bit and just say that I met the Haberman family, and they finally were able to make it into uh, Manhattan. And um, they did not know New York City at all, so they were trying to find the armory, which was still the staging area. Haberman family saw the New York Life Building, and um, I got a call from the concierge, and they said, we have a family here, and it's very important that you come down. It was very difficult uh, to know what to ask or what to say. I probably said something really dumb, like, did you have a safe journey and all that stuff. I just didn't know what to say. I, I imagined the incredible anguish and heartache. They had no word on Andrea at that stage. We didn't know, was she living, was she dead, what had happened. We had nothing. Um, they thanked me for everything that I had done. They actually refer to me um, as their angel in New York. I imagine you gave them a sense of hope before they were able to come into the city, and that must have been really important for them. It was. Um, in fact, uh, the family will tell you that's what allowed them to come into the city because they had that sense of hope um, uh, and um, encouragement that um, not only was it that there was just somebody that was looking for their daughter, it was somebody from West Bend, it was somebody from Wisconsin, it was somebody from their own community who just happened to be there that day, was looking for their daughter, and, um, and that allowed them to kind of come forward um, and come into the city. So it gave them a lot of peace and a lot of solace uh, to be able to kind of start doing some of their steps and their pieces in, in their search. But we worked together for, for quite a, you know, quite a time. Um, and we had a lot of other individuals uh, step forward to help with the search. I know I'm sort of moving forward just a little bit here. Um, you know, years later, after September 11th, we met a lot of really good people who helped the family in, in, in some way. There was 
Um, either they were able to help them just take a look at ground zero. There was uh, iron workers and construction people who were trying to take away the mess and um, you know, work in ground zero and, and take down buildings around it that had been damaged and that needed to be taken down. They helped out the family in so many significant ways. And so what started taking shape uh, for the Haberman family is uh, it really was ordinary people who stepped up and did extraordinary things to help out in their way. So um, all these years later, as we're coming upon the 15th anniversary, we've met so many people in New York, so many people in Wisconsin, and I refer to it as we're a fellowship of people who all met for one reason. We would all take it back in a heartbeat just to have Andrea alive. But we met um, for this one reason, and we're really a fellowship. And we come from all walks of life. Um, when we have our, you know, get together and we commemorate, we have in New York, we have people who are, you know, part of the fire department and police department and iron workers. And I know there's a couple of lawyers in there. And, you know, all these people come together who have some connection to, to the family and um, just wanted, wanted to help them. And this group as a fellowship, I think we've given each other a lot of great support and solace um, over the years. When we get together, we get it. We understand with one another and, um, and we continue to help the family. That was Jessica Osenbruga sharing her recollection of being in New York City on 9-11. To hear more of Jessica's story, including how she continues to commemorate the events of September 11th and Andrea Lynn Haberman, tune in to episode two. To learn more about United Way, including how you can support our podcast, visit our website at www.unitedwaygmwc.org forward slash podcast.